The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello, you lovely Wirestrip listeners, and hello, Kobe. Hello. <laughs> it's me, Dave. Um, and, and we are back for part two of our David Simon special. Um, so if you haven't, if, you, if for some reason you clicked part two of this interview and you haven't listened to part one, what are you doing? How do, You don't know how podcasts work. Go back to the no, feed. It's not just podcasts. I don't know how pop culture works. <laughs> or, no, or numbers. Yeah. You clearly don't know how, how numbers work, and that's okay. The first one is one. It, it was last week. Um, or mere minutes ago, if you're a, a, a patron, uh, head there. Uh, this is a long 90-minute interview we got with David Simon. Um, and I guess, Kobe, without further ado, we will throw to us in the past talking to David, right? Absolutely. Well, yeah, let's just go to David. He's the most important person here. So we have a patron account, uh, guys, if you're listening, uh, patreon.com forward slash the wire strips. And this is where we hold all of our exclusive interviews that don't go on the main feed um and any money generated from the patron goes to the ella thompson fund which we'll talk about like i say later on uh, one of the perks the guys get is to they get first dibs generally about uh, asking our guests the questions uh so this is alex watson from our patron asking how do you feel that the wires influence the tv industry and the way that the themes of the show are explored and how and, and where you're hoping to change the nature of the discussion of these subjects in the creative media um, I think the greatest influence in terms of craft or or structure or whatever we're calling it, um, in terms of the, the making of the actual TV show, um, we were utterly committed to the idea of uh, one story carrying through. Um, so, whereas I came out of, you know, I learned to write TV on Homicide, which was 22 episodes on NBC, and some of the episodes would be length. You might have a two-parter or, you know, even a three-parter once or twice. But um, mostly they were standalone episodes. So they were kind of like short stories. So, you know, if, uh, if you were writing a, if you were writing a series, of, if you were writing a show like Homicide, you were basically writing, you know, you weren't doing Ulysses. You were doing Dubliners, you know, to, to use a literary metaphor. Um, and they were all linked short stories. They, they were of the same place and they had the, some of the same characters. Um, but it was basically a, uh, a short story collection. And the, having written a couple of long form books that were like about a year in the life of the homicide, you know, a year in the life of this drug corner, I was really interested in the idea of what would happen if we could just make it all one story. Um, and TV was at the moment, at that moment, capable of, of offering that. And the evidence to me was not the Sopranos, which I guess beat us out by a year, but because um, I didn't know what the Sopranos were doing at all, but I did see Oz. I saw Oz early on because it was by Tom Hanna, yeah. who's the showrunner who trained me on Homicide. So all of a sudden, Tom's got the ear of this cable network that doesn't have commercials, that will show the show, you know, that will deliver the uh, episodes, you know, four, five, six times a week. 
So if you miss it on Sunday, you catch it on Monday or catch it on Wednesday. Um, that's a recipe for being able to sustain something that's more akin to a novel mm. on television. So that novelization of the um, of long form television became possible. And this was even before box set DVDs or streaming. I mean, it became more and more possible. You, know, you miss you miss the show all five times. You know, you want to see it all. You want to binge it all at once. Here's a set of box of it of discs. Stick them in your freaking computer. Enjoy. Go. You know, just watch it when you want. That was the next revolution, and it came, followed hard on the heels of the arrival of, of premium cable, and then and then right after that, streaming, um, which is basically here's the library, here's your library card. Have fun. Um, that makes it possible to do a very complex story, very ornately, and not worry about it. Or, or viewers can remember from episode three, you know, who who Omar is. Um, it made it possible to do a, a very adult treatment of a narrative, very much akin to a, a modern multi-point of view novel. And um, you could see that. You could see the potential when I watched those first watch the first episodes of Oz. Um, so it was Oz really and Tom that uh, preceded the, the wire and, and deserves credit. But we were there very early uh, and, and I thought we executed pretty well in terms of making a continuing story where people would start to believe that we could juggle all the characters and, and say something. And so I think that's, you know, that's what exploded after the wire. I think we, we, we showed that you could tell a long or neat story um, over multiple episodes and people would find it and people would be able to maintain their interest. Um, you know, and I think that's well, probably, probably our legacy. You actually, you actually made a nice uh, companion piece with Oz. That's how I experienced The Wire first on a TG Catter, yeah. Ireland's uh, premier Gaelic language channel. Uh, just so you know, they, they picked up Oz and The Wire, and they were back to back on a Thursday night. I know, and I, I knew <laughs> it was it nice played, evening. I knew it played on the Gaelic channel. I knew that. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. And you, you snuck in a James Joyce reference as well. I'm very impressed. <laughs> you know, I, I actually, I, you know, I, I'm, I confess, I, I, I'm not an Anglophile. Uh, I like the country; it's fine. But I am. But you stick me in, you know, you get me off the boat in Wexford, and I immediately try to be Irish. <laughs> that's I'm it. Jewish. I'm Jewish so it's you know use language as a weapon and mm -hmm. uh, carry a grudge forever and, <laughs> yeah, very you know, familiar very familiar yeah. Delaney Delaney Williams got married in in, uh, in, in Ireland yeah. Gugan Barra yeah. yeah oh really well so did Dominic West in Limerick mm. that's right yeah. yeah yeah I missed that wedding to my so grace. did I oh, great <laughs> the great Not trio my, uh, my my son had just been born. I'm sorry, my daughter. I'm, I'm mixing up time frames, but my daughter just she was only a week old, and I could not get on the plane. It felt like total dereliction, so I didn't do that. But man, I wanted to go to that wedding. Do you keep in touch with a lot of the the old crew? Do you have a WhatsApp group? No, you know we we see each other when we see each other, um, and we all we we all talk. You know, so social. You know, I mean, you can email anybody and you can text anybody. So it happens all yeah. the time. I probably a week doesn't go by where I'm not talking to two or three people. Usually about not, not about work stuff, but about the world or about each other or, you know, good news. Somebody had some good news. Somebody did, you know, complimenting somebody on something or 
or to be honest, you know, uh, sometimes the phone rings and it's tragedy. So mm. you know, we, there's a real sense of family to the show. So yeah, we we, cer- we certainly do get that sense having spoken to a lot a lot of the cast and crew that there there is this close knit sort of yeah vibe. It, it was different than a TV show. I mean, it was not it was not just a gig. It started as a gig. Um, I mean, if you talk to a lot of them, Wendell tells a really funny story about watching the first couple episodes. We showed him to cast and crew when we were still in production. And we showed him a couple episodes and he watched it and he was like, call your agent because this thing ain't going. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa, it's ponderous. They don't know what they're doing. This can go. You know, so I mean, like, you know, by the end, the fact that we'd all been through it and we'd actually survived and said actually what we intended to say, there's a lot of familial um, camaraderie. There really is. That's lovely. Um, well, speaking of familial camaraderie, um, we have a message from our patron um, from Ian Tunmore, um, who wanted to ask you, he says, uh, The Wire and uh, some of your other shows depict deep frustration that the system is failing the people. He wants to know, are you more or less frustrated now than when you were creating The Wire? Uh, I'm more frustrated. I mean, I, I think it's evident that um, my country, and I think this probably reflects the UK at this point as well, but I'll speak specifically to my country. Um, we have become extraordinarily good at politics. And by politics, I mean the ruthless um, savaging of the opposition without any regard to the ideas undertaken. Content doesn't matter. Maneuver matters. Um, Power matters. What you actually do with that power, what you achieve with it, um, whether you leave your nation better or worse um, is not the issue. The issue is maneuver and, and attack and, um, and dominate. And we're great at that now. We've, 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 we've got it down to a almost instantaneous news cycle um, of who's getting hurt, who's hurting, um, who's hurting them, how are they doing it, what can they use next? great at that we, we've become um we, we may be the the, the the modern synthesis of media um media dishonesty and uh and avarice that's our political system we are terrible the worst we've ever been at governing ourselves what, what do you think has in, enabled that in the past 20 years in particular um, well, I think there was already a paralysis that had resulted from it. I think there's always been an intense divide in my country that dates back to the Civil War over, over things like uh, race and class. And, and, and um, it, it was often submerged. Um, you, you weren't given the same permission uh, to speak of it as, as in this, these last few generations, um, this particularly this current one. Uh, um, that that was always there, and that could always be in in American history. You know, in, in, in certainly all of our post Civil War history, but even before, um, that could always be excited uh, by political record, rhetoric. You could go there if you wanted to, um, and some people wanted to. But but there was some 
there was some sense that it was being civilized. I mean, we had a civil rights movement in this country, the worst excesses of our, of our racial past were being slowly addressed. Um, but we're in a period of backlash now that's been aided by something that is profoundly different, which is the, the death of truth. Um, I, worked, I worked as a reporter for a news organization that would not print things that were not true if they knew them. Um, seems like a basic concept. But, you know, I'm not saying we didn't get stuff wrong. I'm not saying we didn't overlook some of the great trends of the day. I'm not saying we were um, always insightful. But before you sent your story to the copy desk, you wanted to know that every fact in it was true. You, you had the double source shit. You had to, you know, you had to be able to defend it to your editor. Um, I take great pride in my history as a reporter in the times when I saw stories, sometimes my own, go to the Metro Advance basket instead of going to the paper, meaning uh, this story needs to be worked more. We're not sure it's true. We're not sure, the, the, or there, it has a lot of true facts, but it, we're not sure that it is saying what we should be saying about X or Y. Um, so it's going into the kill basket for a while until somebody figures out how to make it good or more true. Um, and those moments don't exist in our current media culture. They certainly don't exist on social media. That you know, We all thought there were assholes who were like teaching in journalism colleges 20 years ago, 25 years ago, um, when the internet raised its head, who said, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, we've gotten rid of the gatekeeper. Now everyone can have a say. Now everyone can, everyone's opinion can be heard. It's, it's the ultimate demo democratization of, of, of information. We don't need gatekeepers. Yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, you know, Otherwise, if we don't need gatekeepers, then, you know, then external actors can send targeted social email information, you know, through various systems to particular populations, particular cohorts, and convince a significant number of voters that, you know, that Hillary Clinton is, you know, has a political career only because she's been able to uh, get rid of 400 people who she's had killed. I mean, that one went around the world. I mean, it went around, it went through Wisconsin, it went through Pennsylvania. I mean, you know, the studies have been done and, you know, we're incredibly susceptible to horseshit now. We have, we have given in to the idea that facts don't matter. Well, when facts don't matter, then, you know, it's a hop, skip and a jump to the point at which, you know, Jews are drinking the blood of Christian babies, you know, baptized babies in order to gain power and to, and to fulfill their, you know, heinous little um, ceremonies and start building some concentration camps. You know, I mean, Goebbels figured this out a long time ago. The bigger the lie, the more they believe. And we've reached that point as a culture. You know, mainstream media now in its gatekeeper role has been rendered irrelevant. And I don't know what you do with that because representative government requires voters to be Informed. Yeah, informed. I, I'm, I wasn't going to say informed is almost too big a word, but I was going to say like marginally informed, like like not certainly not following absurd conspiracy notions into the into the horizon. And thirty percent of my country, twenty five percent of my country is pretty much capable of that right now. Do you think this is is this the worst case scenario of what you were trying to say in season five with with your fake news? sort of plot line. 
Yeah, uh, we were trying to say, what were, what were we attending to? What, were, what, what excited us? What, what excited us as a culture that we were attending to when we weren't attending to all the previous things that we showed you were, were happening in the city that were being unattended to? That was our argument in five. Right. And, and what's kind of funny about that is like, you know, at the time we were like thinking sort of celebrity news, which is still the case, you know, I mean, you know, um, whatever Amber Heard and Johnny Depp went through with each other seems to have, you know, um, more traction right now than, than whether women can control their own bodies in my country yeah. in, in the 21st century. So, you know, go figure. But, um, so part of, partly it was that, but partly it was like, you know, even the, even the culture of reporting was like, you know, I can't tell you how excited, and this was true in Hollywood too, how excitable people are at the idea of a serial killer, the evil man, the, the, the singular evil soul who just wants to kill and kill and kill and kill. And, and usually in, 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 in the most, you know, if you had some sexually perverse, you know, appetite, that oh man you know let's run wild that gets a lot of attention but the violence in my city uh for as long as i covered it was endemic of the drug trade or the corner culture sometimes it was just arguments you know Um, but it was it was basically guys with guns who they weren't serial killers in the classic sense of they they were killing out of you know psychosexual compulsion you know or they needed H, uh, fbi um fbi behavioral scientists charting their their um their uh, their their, their um, psychosis no it was it was people who went down to the corner with a gun and solved every an argument by shooting somebody and until the police came and got them they would continue to shoot people you know, and, and that, that went back to the 1980. I mean, it was like, and it, you couldn't get anyone to attend to it. It just wasn't important enough. It wasn't in the right zip code. It wasn't exciting enough. It was, you know, I mean, I remember I was doing the book Homicide. There was a kid named Roddy Milligan. And he was like 17 years old. And he was from like the, he was like from the Longwood, Westwood area over in West Baltimore. And uh, shot one guy. And they figured out really quickly who, who, who he was. And they got a warrant for him. But they, they never quite picked him up. He was never at his mom's house or, you know, he was on the run. And then he shot another guy. And, and, and then finally he shot a third guy, and they still hadn't picked him up. And finally, Terry McClarney, a very funny philosophical cop, said, you know, you shoot one guy in Baltimore. Okay, it's Baltimore. You shoot two guys, you know, well, you've got, sort of got our attention. You, three, you shoot three guys, maybe it's time to admit you have a problem. <laughs> God. <laughs> And there was something so darkly funny about, like you know, he ended up Roddy ended up, he ended up shooting four guys before they finally, you know, swooped down on the right house at four in the morning and got him. And this guy wasn't a master criminal, and he, you didn't need to you need to know it was like he was a seventeen year old kid with a gun, and that was the problem. And it was like you know, this is was he a serial killer? No, not in any classic sense. But did he take four lives before somebody he finally got the full attention of the, of the city? Yeah. So, I mean, that's what we're trying to say.
We've got um, a question from a patron guy going to talk about season four. Um, as a season, this is sorry, this is Dominic Tollen uh, from a patron. As a school teacher, season four really resonated with me, especially the aspects of political bureaucracy and the system failing the young people within. Do you see this as a continuous loop, or do you think there is a way to break this cycle? You know, this would be a better question for Ed Burns, because I will say that's that was totally his experience having taught. After he had done 20 years as a detective in the Baltimore Police Department, Ed did seven years um, teaching middle school at, at uh, first, well, he taught middle school at Hammond, and then he taught a little bit of high school at City College. And he, uh, those were his experiences. And I will say, um, he was enduring at the point at which no child left behind was gearing up. And those artificial and uh, sort of prefab notions of what progress looks like in an educational setting um, were problematic. Because um, a lot of the same things we saw in the police department uh, were um, the gaming of the system. As soon as they create a stat, there's three guys in the basement trying to figure out how to game that stat and make it look like there's progress when there's no progress at all. And that was true in every agency I ever looked at. It was true in journalism too, in some, some basic ways. Um, it's always a problem. So that was a particular target of those years. And I'm not sure, I can't speak to every, you know, since that was basically a legal and policy paradigm that was thrown over the top of education in America at that moment. I'm not sure if I, I should speak too generically about it in other places. But yeah, that it's such an F to me, it's such an ineffable thing how to teach a kid to think on his own. That's the hard thing to, to make, to make a kid a thinker um, and to make him question the first thing that comes is put in front of him and maybe ask a few more questions and think a little harder and, and trust his own judgments. That's epic. That seems to be the, the height of great teaching. Um, whether or not you can make the kid respond to test questions might not be the best metric. Um, at, at this so, point, David, what we what we tend to do with our, with our guests is kind of move to uh, the exclusive section for for our for the patrons. To, this is to encourage people to go yeah. into to to join our patron account. Like I say, all the money from a patron goes to the Ella Thompson Fund. Uh, and before we do that, I think this is a nice kind of segue to talk about um, middle school, Ed Burns' experience. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the Ella Thompson Fund from your point of view, why, why sure. you guys have supported it? Um, uh, before Ed and I started writing television, uh, our task at hand was we, were, we went to a drug corner, a drug-saturated neighborhood in West Baltimore, at random, kind of, uh, in 1993, and we followed the people there. We wrote a book. And one of the people we followed was a woman who I weirdly had met before, um, Ella Thompson was a woman who, from that neighborhood, who, whose daughter, 12-year-old daughter, Andrea Perry, was um, uh, raped and murdered uh, in, in 1988. And I had actually been in the homicide unit to write my previous book that year. And what I didn't remember when I first met Ella was I'd come to her door with a detective who was actually Ed Burns' partner um, who caught that case, Harry Edgerton. And Harry solved the case, solved the murder. But I remember coming to her door to notify her that her daughter's body had been found. And it's like I had actually, I walked a little ways beside Ella in this moment of grief and then the case evolving afterwards. 
And then five years later, I found myself in her living room because she had volunteered. She, after that tragedy, she volunteered to open up and start to reconstitute the small rec center in that neighborhood. And typical reporter, you know, that, that story was five years old. I didn't quite remember Ella as Ella, um, you know, uh, until she started recounting what drew her to the rec center. She said, well, I, I had, my daughter was killed. And as she started, I was like, oh my God, I, I've met you before. I mean, I didn't say that loud, but like later on, I, I conceded to her that, you know, even though I, it, it was really an astonishing moment for me that like five years later, in a different context, I needed a reminder. So we became friends and close with Ella because a lot of the kids who were on that, in that neighborhood and were even on the drug corners, they were like, they're like man children. They're like, you know, they weren't like drug dealers. They're 15 year old, you know, 14 year old. So they would, they'd go from the rec center and play to selling drugs, you know, in the late afternoon. And then they go home and have dinner. You know, it was, it was it's hard to describe in a drug, you know, how much of a company town uh, a drug saturated neighborhood is. So we became close with Ella. Long story short, uh, as the book was coming out, um, or just a little after the book came out, she was sort of one of the heroes of the book for her, all of her work in that neighborhood. Um, shortly after that, she uh, she died of a, of a, a brain hemorrhage, very young, um, probably carrying all kinds of stress. And by then she was working for the Parks and People Foundation of Baltimore, who were funding her, they, she was doing programming at like four rec centers. And she had asked us to do one thing, uh, Ed and myself, she had said, look, she said, you can't, you don't pay for journalism. I get that. She understood that we you can't do checkbook for journalism. She goes, but when you guys give speeches or you, like, can you maybe like donate? And, and we said, that's a great idea. I said, whenever we speak, whenever we, whenever we have any opportunity to do charity, whenever we have a speaker's fee or um, something for appearing on some program, let us, we'll send that to Parks and People and you'll have an extra fund that you'll be able to use for programming for, for, for your rec centers. So we did. And at first it was, you know, who were we? We were two schmucks who wrote a book. So it was, it was, it wasn't a lot of money, but it was something. And then at a certain point we were making television and we had, uh, we had the wherewithal of HBO and HBO would help us run charity events and stuff. Anyway, there's now, you know, there's now almost $2 million in that account. You know, it, it has a budget every, it, you know, throws money into programming for kids every year in Baltimore and Park and Rex programming and, you know, job training and other things like that. So and you featured it as a you featured in the, as an episode point in uh, in season four of, of Ella Thompson fund uh, fundraiser that Carcatia that Carcati went to. Oh, you know, I forgot we did that. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. Yeah, we were a little. Yeah, and Carcati did. Yeah, I, I actually met Marty Marty O'Malley uh, at an Ella Thompson fundraiser, and I I was the head beat uh, the the. the uh, I offered the most money to have lunch with him. Hmm. Uh, and I did. And, and the reason I did that was a, it was money for the charity, but B I had to break it to him that we were going to start on a new show called the wire. And, <laughs> and, and I had to say to him, honestly, look, you know, you've had two followers had two bites of the apple with homicide in the corner. If you want me to shoot this one somewhere else, I will. It could be any Rust Belt city. And he was like, no, 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 it's fine. We, we want the, we want the film industry. We're fine. We're fine. We're fine. And then after seeing one season of the wire, Marty was like, get out of town. <laughs> <laughs> True story. But, um, but yeah, no, that, 
So yeah, I put Garcetti at that because Marty did graciously attend. So, how did Marty O'Malley feel about Carcetti? Because he was in, uh, one of the influences. Oh, he did not right? like that. He did not. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? I mean, we gave him some distance. We made Carcetti Italian American. You know, we did that on purpose. Um, but he, yeah, there were some elements that he clearly recognized as himself. Um, some of the rhetoric. I mean, we, I, you couldn't. Have, yeah, we're writers. We use what's in front of us. You were the mayor. These are the things you did. You championed mass arrest. You championed the drug war. You know, I, I'm sorry, but, you know, to this extent, that's my critique. You're, you know, some of the stuff you did is going to feature. But I will tell you that I went to see the Pogues uh, play in Washington at the 930 Club. And uh, my, the guy I went with was uh, Aiden Gillen, mm-hmm. another abiding Pogues fan like myself. Yeah. And we were standing there and, the, you know, Streams of whiskey starts playing, and I look over uh, to see who's here at the at the next chair over. And damn if it isn't Marty O'Malley. <laughs> <laughs> I had the great joy and pleasure of introducing him to Angel. And, that is uh, that was the coldest handshake. <laughs> <laughs> coldest handshake you've ever seen. We are running out of time, but we did we did have a question um, on Twitter from Joe Kiley, one of our contributors at Shite Guys Pod, he wanted to ask you about the Pogues musical. Sure. Um, if you could give us a couple of minutes on that. Sure. I've been working on this thing uh, for a decade. Um, and I, I think part of that is I'm working with George Pelconis and Laura Littman. We're, we, we've been uh, contending with the, uh, the play itself and, and where the songs fit in and, and what we're trying to say. We're on our about 10th or 11th read, right? Um, I just got another just, I just, I had to stop working on it because I had, we, we own the city came up, mm. but I just got notes from uh, Oscar Eustace at the public theater in New York. Um, they're good notes. It, it allows for us to go in a different direction. I would say there's two problems and they both have to be solved before um, this thing can be properly staged. But one problem is I never wrote a musical before and neither did George or Laura and, and uh, <laughs> Maybe we're not really good at it. That that's one problem that has to be solved. <laughs> but if we solve that, we actually and, uh, the thing has enough promise that that we've stayed with the public and they've been giving us notes and it's getting better. So I mean, maybe we're going to solve that problem. The second problem is it's always a trick when you have pre-existing songs, as mm. the Pogues discography is, and you need to fit them into a story that you know they all weren't written for. It's not a musical where you come up with the idea and then you write the songs it's quite the opposite it's a jukebox musical so there are moments that work really well really well and the songs are perfect and there are others where it's kind of you know the lyrics are a little bit oblique and mm. uh, and it's tricky and um so we're trying to do it so that we i don't want to do it and have it not be good you know these guys deserve better than that yeah you know shane shane, shane mcgowan's one of the great poets yeah our time he really is and um they deserve it to be right and um so i've you know there have been times where i've had to put it down because of other projects you know the paying gig took precedence but um i hope to get back to it shortly and i hope to turn in that 11-3 right maybe that one will be the charm well let's let's talk to one of those other projects that we own the city um bringing you back together with george pelicanos ed burns the whole bloodline home blown deadline production team i love it when i see Nina K. Noble on there because I know I know what's going on. I can't work without her. And, um, I wouldn't know how to make a TV show without her. <laughs> and so Rena Rena Rexroad on there as, as a producer this time. Um, so 
can you tell us about about the about we own the city obviously it's, it's steeped in true yeah, life it, and it's, it's a natural it's, it's a natural coda to what the yeah. wire was doing. and it came upon us as a found singular piece it was it's 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 non-fiction it's journalism it's about a police unit that went incredibly corrupt in baltimore here we have uh producer tom owning up uh holding up we own the city by justin fenton the the source material for the, for the, for yeah. the tv show um, i was just uh, while we're on this subject i just wondered you know you know you talk about a lot of your stuff is about greater truths and we we you know with the wire at the end of it we found there's a greater sort of a bigger truth to it and i wondered if that was something that you saw in this book as well I just saw it as being, uh, I'd say if the wire's message was end the drug war, the, the message of these last six hours is end the drug war, but it's capital letters. and There's a period after every word because where the wire left the story was you're emphasizing the wrong things. You've lost yourself in the stats. You've lost yourself in that, which is not police work. And you're not, you're no longer attending to what might make the city better. Mm. We're saying that uh, we showed you Hurricane Carver shoving money into their vests and stealing. We showed you randomized uh, street violence by cops against people. You know, break uh, break the kid's fingers for stealing a car. Um, you know, beat the shit out of a guy in, in, through a car window because he irritated you with his car horn. We showed you the um, where it was going, but it needed one or two more generations to get to the point where an entire police unit would not only steal some of the cash from when they turned over a mattress. Um, they would steal the drugs and then sell the drugs back on the street to other drug dealers. They would rob not just drug dealers, but civilians of their cash. You know, that's a level of cynicism and dystopia that requires, again, that leeching of, of integrity and leeching of purpose that the drug war gave to law enforcement so that the, the guys who were doing bad things in isolated and small ways in 1980 or 1990 um, were now running units and we're recruiting the guys who would do that shit with them. And, and that's where we were headed. And it, it, it basically, it, you know, when I saw the stories coming out, because mm. uh, you know, I live in Baltimore, I'm reading them contemporaneously, I called Justin Fenton, uh, the reporter, and I said, Justin, you, you need to write a book. And I gave him the name and number of my book agent, and then I called my book agent and said, you know, to, to, to my, my agent, make this happen. This guy's sitting on an incredible story. And so that's all I thought. I, I, I was responding journalistically to somebody who had Justin's old gig on, on behalf of Justin. You know, behalf of, that's all. I wasn't thinking of TV. Lo and behold, you know, a, a year later, Justin's manuscript is circling around HBO and, and Carrie Antholis, one of the execs there who worked with us a lot, he showed it to George and said, what do you think? George came back to me and Nina and, you know, game on. But we had no intention of coming back to the Wire universe. But this thing was su such a standalone coda to the argument we were trying to have. You must change this mission. You must end the drug war. Um, that we felt we had to do it. With with the corner, then the wire, then we're in the city. Do you feel, I don't know, do you feel there's some kind of completion now? It's some kind of arc there? or I know, They're all separate pieces. I mean, hmm. the corner was about the culture of addiction and, yeah. and, a, and really about a broken nuclear family. Um, and it didn't have a lot of room for policy or critiquing of of national priority. We we put a little of it in in, in, in places we could, but that that left room for the wire to be argued. Um, we felt like we argued all with the wire. This piece, I mean, as I said, I think I, it's just it's I, I hate to be one of these assholes that, that leans hard on "I told you so," 
But, you know, we told you so. We, we, we said this about the drug war, and, and now we're saying it again, and you know, we're shouting. But, it, you know, what happened in Baltimore was where this thing was gone. It's an, I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to see a couple of episodes, um, it's, and I've read the yeah, book, same. and it is extraordinary. Um, for some of the Wire fans over here who won't have seen it yet, um, there are some nods, there's some stylistic nods to the Wire, and I wonder whether they came reluctantly. Do, do, do you know, did you have to have your arm twisted to do that? I mean, thinking more about the, the time codes and the, the shots of the, the, screen, the, shots of the um, computer screens and stuff. Um. I mean, we break time in this. One thing I've never done before is break time. And the reason we did it was we didn't want just a narrative linear, like, oh, here's some bad cops. Here, watch them do bad things and then watch them get caught. Yeah. Then, then all you're thinking is, hey, they just got to get, get rid of the bad apples, which, no, this thing is systemic. We wanted to show you the why. Why did this happen? Why, why was a police unit this empowered to do this kind of stuff by people in authority? Why were they valued? Why were cops like this valued? To do that, we had to go back in time in one way and show you the world that trained them and got them to this point. But we also needed to go forward to when they're all arrested and they're in their prison jumpsuits and they're like being debriefed by FBI agents. They're basically explaining who they were, why they did what they did, and, and how they reflect on it now, because that's where you start to get insight. So we, the time is going every which way, and, and I'm not worried about it. I feel like it's stronger for it. But yeah, if you're a viewer that... Um, is used to the wire going perfectly linear, um, you know, and you're trying to do your laundry or, you know, type your emails while you're watching the show, you might have a little bit of a problem. That is not a good way to watch the wire. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. It's yeah. probably, but we, we probably were hard show to watch anyway. This is probably a step harder. Yeah. What is it? What is it you say about the casual viewer? <laughs> well, okay. You know, anyway, do you want, do you want me to stay with the uh, James, the, with the Joycean metaphors? Sure. If the wire was Ulysses, then this is um, Finnegan's Wake, and you know, you know how many, you know how many <laughs> fucking readers got lost in Finnegan's Wake. You, you, we all know how many people quit on page eighty of Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> um, I'm not going to quit on We Own the City. I'm, re I'm reading the book at the moment um, and and watching the show. In the end, if you, you there may be moments of confusion, by the end you'll see the power of the thing coming full circle. Mm. Like, written as a whole piece, and, and I, I really think it does work, but it asks something of viewers, which we're not we're not uncomfortable doing. Um, but you know, that, but it does feel like, I will say there are some, there's some buried references to the wire. Obviously we use some actors again, usually not in the same type of roles. You know, we tried to. Yep. Poot, um, Trey chain is a cop is every time I see him, I'm like, I don't, I, I can't do, deal with this in my head. That's our way of actually saying we're breaking path. Yeah. With the wire. It's, yeah. it's saying like, don't, you know, don't. And first of all, Actors get to work again. They, 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 it's, you, get one, you know, they got they got to eat too. Uh, <laughs> so so you, you try to use good actors again. But you, you know, we, by making corner boys cops and co you know, you're basically saying no, don't don't link this to the wire in any. But 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 there are other moments where we basically said, here's a little something if you're a wire fan. That moment in the first episode where uh, 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 John Berthold's character is walking foot. And the guy comes out of the liquor store. He's got a bag and a bottle. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and, allusion to Bunny Colvin's. Yeah, it's somebody who has even discarded Colvin's <laughs> um, metrics for um, cohabitation and cooperation with the community. Uh, and and you know and that it happens over this uh, 
perceived moment of, are you respecting me? Or are you not respecting me? Is there enough respect? You know, what's the look on your face? And he just gets so many smashes the bottle. When he smashes the bottle, I thought every wire fan would go, Oh yes. Oh, I did. <laughs> that, that's wrong. That's wrong. There's, you know, there's, there's a little something in there. Guys, yeah, amazing. David, Simon, um, I did talk about having met him in the pub uh, when he's angry about President 45, and um, it was a pleasure to meet them, but it's a pleasure to ask him about The Wire and all the other stuff he's done in between. But there's more. There's more. Part three. Yeah, if if uh, if you are not a patron, this is where your journey ends. Uh, mm-hmm. So you can you can get off the train here. Um, if you are uh, already one of our lovely patrons donating to the Ella Thompson Fund, or want to be a patron, or want to be, then yes. please head on over to patreon.com forward slash the wire stripped, uh, where there is an exclusive remaining third part of that interview with some. I gotta say. Some really good audio questions from some uh, some other cast yeah, crew members. Yeah, you've heard a few of the cast members uh, with questions. We've got the rest of them in this last section. Just a, a quick fire round of uh, of a few questions. Um, yeah, so the wire strip. Sorry, not the wire strip. com. Although you can go there, but it's great. Go to for, <laughs> go to patreon. com forward slash the wire strip and join if you're not a patron. We should say we have a few different tier levels and typically this kind of thing is reserved for the higher tiers but what we're going to do is keep it open to everyone so we're aware that some people are struggling as much as possible but we do want to raise money for charity so we'll let this we'll have this episode available to any any tier um, that you choose to participate in uh, and yeah hope you enjoy it and, and and again a huge thank you to all of our patrons there and everyone mm. who has uh, joined in the past and a reminder that all of the money goes to the Ella Thompson Fund as a special special treat for fans of the wire uh, david simon will be signing some well he's going to give he's going to do an auction and he's going to sign some books posters um amazing treats that will auction off and donate the proceeds of that to the Alice thompson fund so do stay tuned to our social media at the wire strips and um david simon's twitter uh, if you're not on david simon's twitter already then go there because it's a source of absolute delight every single time he posts but that's yeah, yeah he loves a- to take take to take down trolls he's really good at it as well. <laughs> yeah. it's like it's like chef's kiss every time he takes down a troll <laughs> um and that's at ao despair um follow both those accounts and as the as the auction items come live and um, you can go there and and bid and help uh, raise more money um for our thompson fund so like retweet and 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 donate if you can do You just heard a stripped media production.